Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 26. Starting from verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge. The judge, the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. I assure you, you'll be never get out here until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good afternoon. Uh, my name's Andy, uh, one of the student ministers here. Good to be here. Uh, when I was... 11, my family moved uh, from living about a K from the beach to living within 100 metres from the beach. Uh, we lived 100 metres from Wamrul Beach, I don't know if you know it, on the central coast. Uh, and soon after moving to close to the beach, I started to take up surfing. Um, and there was a bunch of people that helped me, you know, took me under their wing in that. But there was one guy that really influenced me in taking up surfing. Uh, his name was Clark, or Clarky. We would know him as Clarky. Now, he was a pretty f funny guy because uh, I don't think I would have ever kind of hung out with him for apart from the fact that he absolutely loved surfing. So he, was, um, he would kind of pick me up before the sun was up in his car, you know, would do the, the drive around to all the different breaks to try and get waves in the morning. So we'd go for earlies. Uh, he was a guy that kind of told me all about the swell directions, all about the winds, told me all the spots, you know, on the coast where the best ways were to go with the best conditions. 
And the part of the fun of surfing is hunting these things down. So he was the guy that told me and get, equipped me to do that. The thing about Clarky is he just didn't care about anything else but surfing. And it just it came out in everything about him. So the type of car he had, he had a four-drive that's so big enough to put his boards in the back and his boards on top. Uh, and also it meant that he could drive on the beach and he'd get to those places where there's good waves. Uh, the type of house he had. His house wasn't, it wasn't big at all. It was tiny, had a massive board room, but it was like really close to good waves. Uh, it influenced, you know, him being a surfer influenced where he went on holidays. It, you know, I don't think he ever went inland on a surfing, like he, he'd never went on a holiday inland. Uh, the time of year he'd go somewhere, he'd always go over to Perth when the waves were on over there. Um, you know, it affected his attitude towards work. He was a... Um, he was a tree lopper, and so and he was his own boss, and so and his his company was actually called to get this onshore tree lopping. So I don't know if you get so when the wind's onshore, it means the waves are bad. When the wind's offshore, it means the waves are good. So he named his company onshore tree lopping. So what that meant was, whenever the waves were onshore, he'd go to work, and whenever they were offshore, he'd be in the in the waves. He'd, be, he'd go surfing. Anyway, Clarkie, his, his life, you know, just powerfully impacted me from, from when I was growing up. And I could see that he absolutely loved surfing. And now I love surfing because of Clarkie. See, Clarkie, he was, you know, he was a real deal, authentic surfer. And he had a profound impact on me. So now I kind of, I can't really say I'm authentic because I'm living in Newtown. But I, I love surfing. Last week, you know, we kicked off this series in the authentic Christian, in the Beatitudes. And today we're thinking about how kind of authentic Christian living will profoundly impact those around us. See, we want to live Christian lives that point to Jesus so that others will be saved. And you, you pick up this purpose of this authentic living in verse 16. Come straight there and have a look in your Bible with us. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. See, Christians are to live in such a way that people see how we live and they think God is good and they come to him and be saved. So we're to live an authentic Christian life and live such a way that people look at our lives and they think God is good and they want to come to him and be saved. And we can kind of see how this works out in the two analogies. Uh, the, the two analogies of salt and light. And so we'll have a look at those. So verse 13, uh, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And if, when I first read that, I was thinking about my hot chips and putting chicken salt all over them. Uh, thinking, okay, that's kind of nice. We're the flavour of the earth. And I think there's a sense to which that is true. But before fridges uh, were invented, uh, you know, one of the main uses of salt was to preserve their T-bone steaks. It was to, to stop them from decaying. And so when we read that with the salt of the earth, we've got to be kind of thinking along the lines of beef jerky, you know, like a good bit of biltong from South Africa, Doug. Um, has anyone made beef jerky? I have. I have. So when I was at uni, um, 
I remember for the first time buying the, you know, the rump steak because it's kind of the cheapest, biggest you can get and cutting it up into slices and you rub your, so you spice, you know, spices into it and then you get your salt and you rub your salt in it, chuck it in the oven for hours you know, on a low temperature for it to dry. It was like six hours plus. It just stunk the house out. But you, know, you put it in there to dry it out. Uh, and when properly done, beef jerky lasts for ages, doesn't it? Yeah, it lasts forever. And so the salt is rubbed into the meat to preserve it, to keep it going. And so when Jesus is saying to you and I that you are the salt of the earth, he's saying you have kind of that distinct character like Jesus and that he wants you to preserve that character. And now getting this helps because when he goes on to talk about salt losing its saltiness, he's getting the idea of mixing salt and something else together, right? So, you know, if you were to rub salt and sugar into a bit of rump steak, you know, the meat, it would rot. Uh, It's the effect of the salt. It has no effect on the uh, meat anymore. It doesn't preserve it. And, you know, the meat is wasted. And so for us, as we are to live our distinct character as Christians, uh, if we're to lose that, then our influence on the world is lost. You, you're with me on that? Then our, our, you know, we're no use for the purpose which God has set us aside for. Now, what does it, I mean, what does it mean for, for us to be distinct? Uh, well, last week, we looked at the Beatitudes, didn't we? And there was, there was three things that we kind of summed it up with. Uh, it's that people, Christians, are humble before God. That is, we're those who are spiritually bankrupt. Do you remember that phrase uh, from last week? We're those that are hungry for righteousness. As we, wanna, we long to live in a right relationship with God. Uh, and we're hated for the sake of Jesus. See, these are the distinct characteristics which Jesus has in mind. And the danger... And the temptation for you and I is that we may end up being useless to pointing others to do Jesus because we've lost those distinct characteristics. And we end up being no different from those around us. So instead of being humble in our workplace, you know, and admitting and owning up to our mistakes or where we've muffed it up, we end up being too proud and we don't admit it, just like everyone else. Or instead of hungering for righteousness, we just end up hungering to advance our career, just like everyone else. Or Monday morning, instead of saying you went to church when that question comes, uh, you shy away and you tell them everything else about your weekend, but that you went to church. So it makes sense why Jesus is saying that being distinct... Uh, and authentic will influence others to be saved, doesn't it? Can you imagine, um, well, so you know the people that fly to Bali and they get a couple of surfing lessons uh, and, you know, they're hooked, right? I'm a surfer. They come home and they they buy the, the boards, the leg rope, the waxes. They buy the roof racks, put them on their car. And then six months later, um, you know, after not having been in the water for six months, they start slowly putting all their gear up on eBay but you can imagine this guy coming to you, right, and saying, hey, mate, you should really take up surfing. And you're kind of looking at him going, really? Do you even surf? Like, do you even, are you even on this? But who is more likely going to convince you, right? 
if this guy, the, the barley guy, that's had a kind of a couple of days at it, or the guy that is totally convinced on it, who's more likely to convince you? That's Jesus' point. It's, it's, it's Clarky. if you want to surf. I'll introduce you. But anyway, see, the, 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 the point here is that we're to point people to Jesus and we're to live as salt of the earth. But we're also to live as light of the world. So verse 14, have a look at it there with me. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives light for all who are in the house. See, the, it's quite a clear image, isn't it? That a light is useful when it's shining light. Um, quite obvious. But it's like the, um, you know, your, your light you have at the front, at the outside of your front of your house, you know, your front door light. See, we all think differently about how to use that light, don't we? See, are you, are you a 24-7 front door light person? You know, it's on. Um, that, that switch never comes off. It doesn't matter if it's shining out the front of the house. That, I've got that light on because I want that light to be on for when I come home and it's dark and I want to be able to put the key in the lock. Or are you the, um, you know, the front door, the kind of special occasion person? Oh, we have people around. We'll put the light on. They can see our front door. You know, they'll know where to knock. Uh, or maybe you're a bit like me, you know, the tidy, I don't know, tidy 180, whatever, tidy person who, um, nah, it's not going on. I'll just use my phone light if I need to find the key, you know. But the, the point is, what's the point of having a front light if you never turn it on? Like, it's, it's useless, that front door light, isn't it? And I reckon we can kind of do our Christian life a bit like our front door light. See, sometimes we're happy to flick the switch on and put the kind of Christian light on. But other times, uh, we prefer not to. Just keep it a, keep it a bit dark. Uh, but Jesus wants us to be that kind of 24-7 light on kind of people. Always living as distinctly pointing to Jesus. And verse 16, we've already read it. The reason is so that people would see our life and they would be saved. So I want, I want you to notice this, that the purpose here isn't about living a certain way so that God might be pleased and accept you, right? Because we know that the people he's talking to here are already saved. Now, did you notice that in verse 18? It says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, it says, you are the light of the world. See, he is saying, be who you already are so that others will see your life and turn to God and be saved. Where does this kind of living happen? Well, it happens wherever you are, doesn't it? Wherever God has placed you to live. So it happens in that meeting with your boss. It happens when you're at Woolies and your kids, you know, are screaming and throwing that, that great free fruit everywhere. Uh, it, it happens whenever and wherever you choose to live out the authentic life, doesn't it? And when you do this, God will use your life to draw other people to himself and be saved. So have a think about um, for yourself. Who, who were the influential people in you becoming a Christian, if that's you? Uh, there, was, there was a bunch for me. Um, probably the most influential person was my dad. Uh, see, dad lived in a way 
that pointed me to Jesus. I remember when I was 11, I think it was 11. We hadn't yet moved to the beach, so maybe just a bit before 11. But I remember uh, I had a mate over um, hanging out, and Dad had gone out for the morning. Uh, it was winter, and we had one of those awesome indoor fireplaces. So good. Uh, but anyway, we were getting a bit bored, and so we, we started to think and put things in the fire to burn them and have fun. So things like, you know, we burnt a couple of cars, put them in the fire, watched them burn, and then took them out and was like, oh, that's good. But anyway, we had this bright idea of getting a milk bottle, filling it full of water, putting it in the fire, and we thought, like, the fire would burn a hole in the plastic, water would pour out and put the fire out. Uh, that was, you know, 11-year-old thinking, and it's pretty good, isn't it? Anyway, it didn't go as planned. Um, so we put it, we, remember, we put it in the fire, uh, and um, somehow, I, I don't, not, not quite sure this step here, but somehow my mate, you know, the, the um, pokey, sticky fire thing, I don't know what they're called, what are they called? Whatever, the fire pokers, you know, whatever they are. He, somehow he had got that, we opened up the glass thing, and he got this kind of, the, the milk bottle, which had kind of shrunk down, but it was a light, the plastic was burning hot, out of the fire and onto my hand, so I've got this scar here, onto my hand and I kind of flicked it and went onto my brother's foot and then on the floor in our lounge room, on the carpet there, there's this little kind of plastic fire, a light, right? Um, and, you know, before, this is, this is the funny thing, we had one of those um, hairspray bottles, you know, the, you know, yeah, and we thought, yeah, this will set it out and so my mate grabs that and we're like, just nothing. And I'm like, okay, this isn't working. In a rush, run to the kitchen, grab an esky lid and like kind of shove it over and smother the fire. Um, anyway, so we had this fire in the lounge room of our house. Uh, the scary thing, um, you know, apart from my brother screaming around with his foot on fire and my hand is burning, was thinking, uh-oh, what's Dad going to say when we get home? Like, how's this going to go down? Uh, and anyway, a couple of hours later, Dad turned up. I remember running at the front, you know, as you do, trying to soften, you know, <laughs> soften the blow, thinking, okay, how am I going to kind of break this to him? And told him the story, showed him my hand and, you know, a bit of sympathy. And we get into the lounge room and there's, you know, that black plastic burn mark. And, and you know what dad said to me? Dad said to me, well, I'm glad you didn't burn the house down. That was it. In all of that. And I remember that afternoon, my mate said to me, I can't believe your dad didn't go off at us. He said, my dad would have just gone nuts, would have gone ballistic. You see, my mate there had noticed that my dad was being distinct, hadn't he? That dad was living as salt and light in the world. And to be honest, you know, there was, there was many moments where dad was living that for me. And this was just one of them. But for, for me, it was his consistent living it out. His genuine, humble witness powerfully impacted me. So firstly, we're to point people to Jesus by being salt and light in the world. So that people might be drawn to God and be saved. Secondly, we're to live lives that point to Jesus by obeying the law from their heart. So this is point two um, 
See, Jesus, obeying the law for Jesus isn't just about an external, ticking the box kind of thing. But it's actually about an internal obedience of the heart. And in, in 17 to 20, Jesus moves righteousness from a measurement of the external to a measurement of the internal, to a measurement of the heart. So have a look kind of where it, it hits the road really hard for us in verse 20. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, it's like, it's like this. Have, have you heard of the GoPros? You know, the GoPro things, the, you know, the camera you stick on your helmet to show everyone how much of a hero you are. So this is what it's like, right? The Pharisees are those people that are concerned with the external. So they chuck their GoPro on their head uh, and if you could record their whole life, uh, you know, watch every action, all their words that they did from the external, they would be so careful at making sure that externally they look the part, right? What Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I am concerned with your heart. So instead of sticking the GoPro on your head, Jesus is saying, stick it in your heart, in your heart. So along with all the external kind of words and actions of your life, this GoPro records the secret thoughts of your mind and those motivations in your hearts. See, it's here in the heart is the righteousness that Jesus is concerned with. And you know, the only person to have ever lived who will be able to sit here in this room if we were to put their whole life's footage up on the screen and not run out the door is Jesus. You know, he could sit here and be like, yep, that's my action and that's my heart there. Because Jesus is the one who lives and perfectly obeys the law from his heart. That's what it means in verse 17. Have a look at verse 17 with us, where it talks about him fulfilling the law and the prophets. He did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So Jesus is the only one who authentically lived out these kingdom distinctives. He's the only, one, the only true light of the world. And now because Jesus perfectly fulfills this, the, the law... Jesus also gives to those who trust in him a new heart so that you and I, those who trust in Jesus, would be able to follow him from the heart out. That's profound, isn't it? This, that's why he's calling you and I to be salt and light because that is who he's made us from the inside out. He's calling us to live out who we are. So our lives are to point people to Jesus by being salt and light in the world and by obeying the law from the heart. He then goes on to show us what obeying from the law from the heart looks like in terms of anger and murder. He gives us six things, which we're just looking at the first one, in terms of anger and murder. So come to verse 21, and I want you to notice how Jesus takes the external to the internal, to the heart. So verse 21, you have heard it, that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. See, Jesus is saying there, don't 
think that because you haven't got blood on your hands, that this is not an issue for you. You hear that? See, Jesus brings the question of murder to the heart. And he asks us, are you an angry person? Because if you are, you have blood on your hands. And Jesus says, this person, this anger requires urgent action. So he, he tells an illustration which shows the urgent and the drastic action that is required. So have a look at verse 23 with me. He says, so if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. See, the urgent action there is, that, is to drop anything and everything at any cost in order to be reconciled. So that's what Jesus did for us, isn't it? He dropped everything at so much cost so that you and I could be reconciled to him. So the, the illustration that Jesus shows uh, is, well, you, you've got to understand, so in Israel, uh, you couldn't just, you know, walk out your house and make a sacrifice. You'd have to go to the temple, and the temple was in Jerusalem. So this means that if you wanted to make a sacrifice on the altar, you'd have to travel all the way to Jerusalem, and you'd have to take all your food and luggage, uh, or your animals, and then you'd have to, um, you know, prepare your sacrifice for the altar. And once you'd done the journey and you're there, once you got to the temple, you'd have to wait for your turn to get in, and you'd have to go through the rituals and the blessings to go in there. And it was a lot of effort to get to the point at the altar. And Jesus is saying, if you have got to that point at the altar, in that moment, if you remember that you have anger in your heart, the most important thing you can do then is to leave it there and go find your brother and be reconciled to that person. See, festering anger in the heart is a massive issue and it needs to be nipped in the bud straight away. Now, what I hadn't noticed before when I read this was that it's not just your own anger in your heart, but it's actually if you've caused your brother to be angry at you. Did you notice that? Have a look in verse 33. So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, go be reconciled. Do you see that? So normally I'm like, well, you know, it's not my issue. If he's got something wrong with me, that's his issue, not mine. I'm like, sweet, I, I haven't got anything wrong with that person. That's their issue. They can, they can deal with that. But Jesus is saying, no, if you know that someone has something against you or an issue with you, it's on you to go and seek and to be reconciled with that person. He's saying, that's your problem. Can I ask you, is there people right now who you know have a problem with you? See, it's not enough just to leave the ball in their court. It's on you. Go and seek reconciliation with that person. Now, I know that anger and frustration is a real difficult issue for us all. I mean, I have kids, I'm married, I live, I drive in this place. Can I say, if you know that you've been angry, you know, you, you need to make sure that you... Go to that person and repent and say sorry to that person. 
And, and when you do, this, this is the point. Don't think that apologizing and confessing is a failure, right? Because actually, when you apologize and confess your wrongs, this might be the clearest way you can be salt and light to that person. Because it's the humble. It's the, those who are poor in spirit who's in the kingdom of heaven, isn't it? It's a picture of the gospel there. Now, if you're anything like me, and it seems to be the same you know, things that keep coming up a time and time again, maybe we've got to try a different strategy, have a different plan there. You know, it's like that pothole in the road when you're coming home. And no matter how hard you try, you always seem to hit it on the way home. You know it's there, but you, you put a wheel in it every time. Um, so we want to, I want to think of a plan that's going to help us to miss the pothole of anger, right? So maybe outside of the situation, uh, think about for yourself now, when are the times that you're vulnerable? What are the things, you know, what are the moments, the situations that just cause you inside to rile? So is it when you're at dinner with your family? You know, is it when you're stressed and you haven't slept? Uh, is it when you're driving the car through King Street, whatever it is, and that motorbike keeps coming in? You know, is it at work? Uh, you know, just think about for yourself, when is that time? And when you're outside that moment, think about what are the things that I can do that are going to help me to take a breath, to cool down, and to respond in a godly manner. See, with uh, with children that can't eat at the dinner table, and it's the you know it's it's the seventh night in a row that food's going everywhere and nothing's going in the mouth, and you're like, what am I doing? You know, perhaps you and your wife or your spouse, husband, say, okay. When I'm at that point, I'm just going to stand up. I'm going to walk out the front door. I'm going to, you know, get a bit of fresh air. You probably get a bit of sun because it's still afternoon when you're eating dinner with your kids. Uh, but, you know, cool down and then come back in. You know what I mean? There's a plan. Perhaps give that a go. Work out the steps that are going to help you to avoid that anger pothole. And I, when, when we pursue righteousness in this way, you know, acknowledging the sin and the anger in our heart, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation, doesn't that shine the true light of Jesus more brightly there? Isn't that what this authentic life would look like? See, for me, Clarkie had such a powerful impact on me becoming a surfer. But God uses your lives to powerfully impact those around you. So live in such a way that people see how we live, they think God is good, and they come to him and be saved. How about I pray? A gracious God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, uh, who did live the authentic life perfectly. And we pray and thank you that in your goodness, you save people and you give them a new heart, and you change us from the inside. And we pray, Father, that you would do that work of transformation in our lives. Uh, so that, Father, people may see our life and they may turn and ask who and why and what are you doing this for? And so that we may answer because Jesus has been profoundly good to us.